Welcome to the Speed Jason podcast, and I'm delighted to be with Alison Grimaldi. She's a clinician, she's a researcher, and she's got a strong focus and interest in lateral hip pain, which is an important problem. It's prevalent and one that we haven't touched on before on these BJSM podcasts. And we're actually in New Zealand at the New Zealand Physio Conference, which has been a tremendous success, and congratulations to our colleagues in New Zealand. So, Alison, let's begin with a scenario of a patient who may be peri or postmenopausal, and they've complained of, say, you know, two months of hip pain, and they're not very really good at localizing it, and they've had some trial of some anti-inflammatory tablets and things, and this hasn't been effective, and they're worried about osteoarthritis of the hip, and they're coming and have been referred to you in your role as an expert in lateral hip pain. So a patient like this turns up, and this is quite a common scenario that we see, see in our clinic, there's often been a history if you sort of look over what happened in the months or weeks leading up to the onset of pain, there's often been some sort of change in loading. So they might have been worried about a weight gain, which is quite um, common um, during that sort of peri-postmenopausal um, period. They decide they're going to start exercising, so often they start walking, often it's sort of power walking or including a lot of hills uh, to get their heart rate up. This um, constitutes quite a significant increase in load um, of the hips, uh, the tendons around the lateral hip. So they often get this um, pain onset. So when they come into the clinic, they're usually complaining of pain and the area of pain is very important. So it needs to be sort of laterally for us to really consider um, that diagnosis of glute med tendinopathy. So rather than just pain around the posterior buttock. So we want sort of pain in the area of the greater trachea. Um, commonly, they'll also um, say that the pain extends down the lateral thigh, and it can even go just into the top of the lateral leg. So that's a fairly uh, common scenario. They'll complain that um, often the worst thing is nighttime. So either lying on that side or even lying on the other side. So side lying is a big issue. They often have sleep disturbance associated with that. Um, other things that they might describe as um, functional problems, tasks like standing on one leg, so that might be standing on one leg in the morning to dress, um, climbing upstairs is a particular problem, walking um, at a slow to moderate speed might be okay, but fast speed or uphills, upslopes um, or upstairs is usually a problem. Uh, so they're probably the biggest issues for that group. And Alison, what about your assessment? So from then we want to try to look at tests that might help us differentially diagnose lateral hip pain. So at the moment as part of a um, multi-centre randomised controlled trial through University of Queensland, University of Melbourne, um, Professor uh, Bill Vicenzino is, is heading up that research. We've been looking at the um, diagnostic utility of a number of clinical tests that we use. So we want to know which clinical tests are going to be um, most helpful for us. So things that we use, um, for example, even just standing on one leg, and this has been reported in the literature by Lequesny. So if you stand, stand the patient on one leg, just with one finger on the wall for a little bit of balance. But the difference is you don't want to just stand them for five or 10 seconds. You want them to stand for up to 30 seconds. And what we're looking for is reproduction of pain over the greater trochanter, plus or minus some pain down the lateral thigh. But the pain around the greater trochanter is very important. And so um, if they get their pain within five or 10 seconds, you can stop the test there, but otherwise continue the test to that um, full 30 seconds. 
um, and that's been shown um, with our analysis to actually be um, a very useful test in terms of um, a positive um, predictive um, test. So if they're positive on their, that test, um, they've got a high likelihood that if you sent them off for MRI that they would have changes on MRI. So that's probably the first test that you might do from a diagnostic um, point of view while they're standing. The bed tests that we do your standard type Faber test, so hip flexion, ankle above the opposite knee, stabilize the pelvis and take that right leg into abduction and external rotation. So again, we are looking for pain importantly around that lateral hip region because obviously Faber is used for diagnosis of lots of different things. Um, so we're particularly looking for pain around the greater trochanter. And Angie Fearon's work has used Faber and interestingly showed that the people who have um, gluteal tendinopathy, lateral hip pain, um, they don't tend to have a loss of range of motion, but they get a pain um, around the greater trochanter. So that might help you differentially diagnose with hip, hip OA. Um, then we do a test that we call FADER, which is basically flexion to 90 degrees. So you've got the right leg flexed to 90 degrees, um, adducted to end of range, and then externally rotated to end of range. The point of that test is to wind the iliotibial band up around the greater trochanter and cause compression of the gluteal tendons um, between the iliotibial band and the greater trochanter. And from some really nice work, um, well, Al McKinder's probably first talked about the effect of compression, but there's been some good science um, around the effect of compression with insertional tendinopathies. And Jill, Jill Cook and Craig Purdom have done a couple of nice articles, 2012, 2013 in BJSM that talk about that a lot. Um, but compression, particularly compression with some added tensile load, seems to be particularly important um, with insertional tendinopathies like lateral hip pain. And so we thought, well, that's a nice thing to actually use in our diagnostic tests as well. So if we compress the tendon, um, we're hopefully going to provoke it a little bit. Um, so that seems to be um, quite a specific test. And it's even more specific um, for my analysis if we add tensile loading to that. So from that end range position, so flexion, adduction, external rotation, we then hold them in that very end range position and ask the patient to resist an external rotation force. So they're doing an isometric internal rotation of that right hip. So that basically contracts all the um, gluteus medius and minimus um, and puts tensile load on the tendon while it's being compressed. And so that seems to increase our specificity of those tests even more. Um, then we would do a sideline test, uh, sort of like a modified OBUS test. We call it just an adduction test. So the hips in extension. So the patient has to be lying slightly obliquely on the bed. So you can take that hip back. So they're lying on their left side. You take your right hip into a neutral extension position, drop the hip down into maximum adduction. Again, we're using that compression um, to try to sort of look at uh, provoking that tendon at the lateral hip, so glute med and or minimus tendon. So we do the passive element first, and then we do the passive plus the tensile load. So in that full end range position, we ask them to resist a further adduction force. So they are doing an isometric abduction. Um, so we add that compressive, uh, the compression plus the tensile load again. From our analysis, again, that improves the specificity and the usefulness of that test. So that test showed um, quite a, um, showed a moderate um, 
uh, positive likelihood ratio, which is useful. And then the final thing, of course, is palpation. And palpation really is a key sign in your diagnosis. They really have to be tender over the greater trichanter. And of all the clinical tests we do, we did um, the uh, palpation was the only test that was really uh, highly sensitive and it had the best negative likelihood ratio. So that just tells us that if you are not tender or if your patient is not tender um, over the greater trichanter, the chances of them having um, gluteal tendinopathy on MRI is significantly reduced. So then what about investigation? Is there a need for investigation? Well, there's lots of um, discussion about that uh, at the moment, particularly with tendinopathy. And there's certainly a strong view from many in the physiotherapy community that perhaps tendinopathy is a clinical diagnosis because across many tendinopathies, and, and this includes lateral hip pain, that we actually see uh, if you MRI the normal population, there is a lot of people who will actually have changes at the lateral hip which are not correlated with any clinical signs of tendinopathy. So that's why when we did the diagnostic utility study, a lot of our tests um, were specific but not sensitive, and that's because we would diagnose them as clinically negative, so we didn't consider that they had clinical signs of tendinopathy, and yet when you went to the MRI, many of them did actually have tendinopathy. So uh, I think it's not a first line of investigation. So, Alison, let's talk about treatment. You've thought a lot about that as a clinician and in your research. And so is it a tough condition to treat? It certainly can be, particularly the longer um, the person has had the symptoms for. It can take quite a while to sort of get through that rehab process. and But that's not uncommon with tendinopathy. And I think for a start, that's a very important message to get across to the patient that it's it's not like an ankle sprain. It's a different process. And by and large, the people that we are seeing with lateral hip pain uh, are more in the degenerative stage tendinopathy. And so it, it takes a while for them to uh, rehabilitate. But that doesn't mean that we can't make significant changes or what we consider as um, clinically significant changes in their pain uh, within a relatively short period in the in the clinic so it's important that people don't lose hope to think oh it's going to take me three or six weeks at three or six months to make any change certainly in terms of changing physical strength and improving their function to an adequate point it can take a while but in that um, first you know few weeks you can make a lot of change by changing their loading and that's a common message with uh, most tendinopathy uh, management programs. So we mentioned before just about compression. So one of the things that we like to educate patients about is trying to minimise exposure to compression um, during their everyday life. And that's sort of across a 24-hour period. So for these people, both nighttime and daytime uh, positioning and movement patterns are going to be important. So simple things like crossing your legs will wind up the iliotibial band. So anything where the knee goes across the body or the hip goes out relative to the knee. So for example, if you're standing, you're standing in that typical hanging on one hip posture where the hip gets shifted out to the side, the pelvis gets dropped down, that winds up the iliotibial band and compresses against the lateral hip. And so we try to encourage people not to do those sort of things. And nighttime is important. 
So if they're lying on that side, we want them to, well, preferably spend as little time as possible on their side. But if they use an eggshell mattress overlay, that can help um, patients. And um, if they are lying, so if that we have the lady with the right-sided problem, if they're lying on the left side and their um, leg is hanging down, over the body then of course they are still adducted and compressed so having pillows between the legs is important but if they can stay supine that's a better position because we have um, least compression and then taking out things like uh, lots of stair walking or walking at speed and trying to improve their postural and gait habits is important early on and then we go into an exercise program. And before we go into the exercise program, you mentioned ITB a few times, and let's just remind the listeners of the anatomy and how you explain the pathology to the patient. So we're talking about the gluteal medius tendon? Sure. So if we think about the anatomy at the lateral hip, so we have the gluteus medius and minimus tendons joining onto the greater trochanter, but it's important that we don't just think of them joining onto the very proximal tip. So those tendons come right over to the lateral aspect. So the gluteus medius tendon joins onto the lateral aspect, the gluteus minimus tendon onto the anterolateral aspect of the greater trochanter. Then we have um, bursae sitting. So there's one large bursa that sits over that that you're probably familiar um, uh, as the trochanteric bursa. And there's a couple of other little bursas between the um, glute min and the med tendon and the bone and then over the top of that we have the iliotibial band and so I like to get an anatomical model out for my patient and explain the uh, anatomy to the patient and just show them that when the hip is adducted that we get some compression of um, those tendon structures and the bursal structures between the iliotibial band and the greater trochanter. Obviously we don't want to scare them and make them um, afraid of this. I tell them it's about cumulative loading. It's not like they're going to put their leg once in that position and they're going to tear their tendon. Um, but the idea is we want to try to minimise that sort of load and use exercise to put in some more positive loading to get some more positive torque in the tendon and some more um, uh, positive change within the tendon over time hopefully. So take us through the exercise part of the treatment program. Sure. So the first thing we usually do are some isometric uh, abduction exercises. So we are trying to put some low load uh, activation through the trochanteric abductors, so the gluteus minimus and medius. Now we don't at this point in time have a good answer for you know, how hard that um, isometric contraction should be. Certainly Jill Cook and Ebony Rio are uh, in the treatment of patellar tendinopathy are doing um, more like a 70% um, maximum voluntary contraction. We're just tending to use lower level um, MVCs more because the anatomy around the lateral hip is a, is a little bit more uh, complex and so we have superficial abductors such as TFL and upper gluteus maximus that join into the iliotibial band and strong contraction there may actually increase that compressive load so we're really trying to get the message through to the gluteus minimus and medius that we know with gluteal tendinopathy get quite atrophied and inhibited so we sort of use it both as a, a pain relieving exercise and also as a motor control exercise so we can either do it lying on the side and so if we had the right-sided 
um, patient, we'd lie them on the left side. There has to be enough pillows between the legs that there's no abduction because we don't want any compression. And then they basically just do a preparation for abduction. So it's just an isometric abduction. The important thing is that they go um, very slowly so that it gives those deeper muscles a chance to activate. But certainly clinically we find that the TFL becomes very um, dominant, in, dominant in that abductor activation pattern. So we really want to upregulate, if you like, the activity in the deep system. So you can also do that in supine, a pillow under the knees and a belt around the knees and just think about slowly taking the legs apart. So there are a couple of common positions that we use. And interestingly, even at low level, we have some um, in the clinical practice, we see some good results from pain relief just from that little exercise. So that is helpful. And then we go on to more uh, strengthening and um, exercises where we are looking at improving functional alignment control. And that is particularly important because if we're thinking about uh, that adduction is um, part of the pathoecological mechanism, most of these people tend to, uh, certainly in clinical practice, what we observe is they tend to have poor abductor function, which unfortunately means that they spend more time in adduction, which increases the compressive load at the lateral hip. So when we are doing things like squats or getting people to practice getting up and down out of a chair, we want them to avoid those adduction internal rotation patterns of the femurs. So we want them to keep their knees facing straight ahead. But that's also giving them some nice functional strengthening exercises where they're using their gluteals and their quads to um, get them stronger. But then we need to move on to single leg biased exercises. So we go through um, an offset squat. So where if the right side is the problem, you have your left foot where you just sort of weight bearing just slightly behind the other foot on the ball of the foot, sort of like you'd be in a scooter position, like you'd ride a scooter. Um, they are allowed to hold on with their opposite hand as well with their left hand. And it's the same pattern as the double leg squat. And with both all of these squat things, it's important that the technique of the squat is a bottom back trunk forward squat. If you keep your trunk upright, you get more stimulus in your thigh, but we really want that gluteal stimulus. So that bottom back type technique with a nice neutral spine position, but even more particular is that position of adduction of the hip. So we encourage them to focus in a mirror on looking what's happening at the trochanter or the side of their hip, and they're trying to keep their hip in from the side. So we're trying to minimize adduction at the hip. So knee straight ahead, but hip has to be in. So if you just concentrate on keeping the pelvis level, sometimes they can still be shifting sidewards um, and they'll have too much adduction at the hip. So it is important that we control both tilt and shift. So they bring their hip into the side. So we go from offset and then into single leg. So practicing single leg stance, practicing single leg squat, but um, people shouldn't be taken off hand support too early. It's important that they can use their hand so that they can optimize alignment control first, and then you slowly wean them off that. But if they are standing in too much adduction to do their exercises, then obviously we're getting too much compression. So the critical thing is that we really need to control that. So that's probably um, an important part of the exercise program. We also use some bridging progressions to strengthen around the gluteals as well. So that's just lying on your back with your knees bent, using your gluteals to squeeze and lift your bottom off the bed because often we see gluteus maximus um, uh, 
deficiencies as well. So with the height of the lift, you don't have to lift too high up with that bridging. Particularly in this older group, we might also have some coexisting lumbar spine issues. So if you lift too high, you might actually give them a grumpy lumbar spine. So as long as they're getting a good gluteal activation and clearing off the bed, I usually get them to lift till they've still got five or 10 degrees flexion in the hip. So we don't want to lift too high. So that's a useful exercise. For pure strength, my favorite exercise is using Pilates type equipment um, or some sort of sliding platform. Spring resistance seems to be best in terms of being able to get enough load across the, um, across the system. So if you can imagine a, a Pilates reformer or basically a platform where you, you're standing on one side of a um, sliding device and, and on the right foot you might start off with that foot being the stable side, uh, the left foot is moving and so you're actually going to abduct both hips so your pelvis comes with the moving side so you're basically doing the side splits but you're not going to go right into full abduction but you have spring resistance so you're doing nice concentric and then eccentric um, activation of the hip abductors so we usually do facing each way because you're working both sides but you'll just get slightly different stimulus but that nice slow heavy loading is a lovely way for us to um, hopefully build strength and hopefully reverse some of the atrophy over time and also to get some nice loading across the tendon without any compression because we're moving into abduction. Now if you don't have access to that sort of equipment or for patients at home we prefer instead of doing open chain abduction so standing on one leg with a band around the ankles and taking the leg out to the side Closed chain uh, can be particularly helpful, we think, and there's some evidence for that in the literature that um, deeper muscles or weight-bearing muscles prefer to have some stimulus up through the feet. And so if you have both feet on the ground, say, for example, you're standing in a doorway and you get the patient standing in the doorway, they can hold onto the doorway for um, some support. And then if they have a band around the ankles, start in a semi-squat position and then they're just going to slide one leg out to the side so they need to have something slippery under the foot so either one foot's on a lino surface or a, a wooden surface with a sock on uh, or if you've got carpet you can just use a picnic plate without a ridge underneath the bottom that's nice and slippery and they just slide one out to this one leg out to the side and then slowly bring it back in again so again we're doing just nice concentric eccentric um, contraction of the hip abductors so this system We've, we've developed keeping in mind that whole proposed pathoetiological mechanism about compression so trying to reduce compression and gradually introduce uh, tensile load allowing the tendon to adapt to that and the muscle um, to adapt to that and really trying to optimize alignment control around the lateral pelvis but of course we don't have evidence for this at the moment so it's something that needs to be tested and that's part of what we're doing uh, with the LEAP trial. Just finish by talking about how you do this differently for a younger patient who um, may present with lateral hip pain and then we'll call it a day. Sure. So with someone who presents um, in the younger age group, usually they've been someone who's been doing running or they might have been doing boot camp and doing bounding up um, two or three stairs at a time um, or doing step type aerobics and just hasn't got quite enough um, control around the pelvis. In terms of diagnosis, we'd still do all the same diagnostic tests. You might want to take them into some higher level loading tests if you're not getting um, 
the um, a positive on you know standing on one leg but we haven't sort of looked at the diagnostic utility of that but you might look at hopping or stepping up and down off, off a step or um, hopping off the step and landing on one leg to just increase that um, loading a little bit to see if you get uh, any provocation out of the tendon but usually when they're presenting they've probably got a bit more of a reactive stage tendinopathy um, or if they've had it for a while, they might have a, a reactive on a degenerative tendinopathy. In terms of the way we manage them, uh, we'd go through a similar management program. Load management is still going to be very important, but we don't want to take them completely off their exercise. So it's just trying to take out the highest load parts of their exercise. So we just bring it back to what they can do without finding that they're getting aggravation of their pain over the 24 hours um, after their exercise. So we might just have to take them off hill running or if they're doing boot camp, depending on if we can modify it, we might allow them to continue it but take out the bounding up the stairs or those sort of things that require really good abductor control and have lots of stretch shortening cycle in them. So um, things where they're getting energy storage and release like bounding and, and things like that. Um, we might just have to take them off um, higher speed uh, running or longer distance. So we might just have to reduce their distance a little bit. So that might just take a little bit of tweaking to get the load management right and get their symptom control right. In terms of exercise therapy, we would use a, a similar sort of approach, but obviously the younger patient is going to progress through those exercises more quickly. So for example, someone who's deconditioned and older, uh, they might be on double leg bridging and offset bridging for a significant period of time and they might not be able to get to a period, uh, a point where they can get one leg off and do a single leg bridge, particularly if they've got other coexisting um, comorbidities like lumbar spine pain, but the younger ones shouldn't. So the younger ones might progress through that more quickly and as long, so the important thing is that they are maintaining good alignment control as you move them through the levels of exercise and that you are continually looking at their response to loading from their exercise over that 24-hour period. So then they would take um, yeah, less time to move through to those higher level exercises and then we would want to take them into some more dynamic loading as well that might fit with what they need to do in their everyday life and in their sporting activity. And so for example, once they can do a nice controlled single leg squat, we might want to add some dynamic loading into that and take them from like standing on two legs and then sort of bound from there and land and land onto that. So again, if they've got a right legged problem, um, push off, land on that right leg so that we really want to re-educate that landing control and make sure that as we add higher velocity and force into that, that they are not collapsing again into that adducted position. So those are important things and we wouldn't just do that in one direction. Um, practicing multi-directional landing control is very important. You might go into drills like side shuffling, side stepping, zigzag, figure of eights, particularly if they're going back to some sort of change of direction sport. But they, 
controlling those directions in um, sidestepping and um, with you know different variations of going sidestepping and forward and sidestepping and backwards they're really important functional things um, for younger people generally um, but particularly for our athletic population so we need to make sure that we are um, going to that extra level of bridging the gap between just doing slow strength exercises and the dynamic sort of loading they're going to need to do with sport. Lots of great principles there that apply in other conditions as well, Alison. So thanks so much for your time today. Very practical advice. I'm sure it's going to be a very popular podcast. Uh, I really appreciate you fitting us in at the Physiotherapy New Zealand Conference in Auckland. Congratulations on your presentation there and your work in lateral hip tendinopathy and this concept of compression as a problem. And thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. Follow us on Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ for regular updates on sports medicine for your practice. Thanks for listening and have a good day.